Well, good afternoon. We're continuing with our program, but this time with something a little bit different. Uh, Dr. Amy Sturgis, uh, someone I've known uh, for some years. She's an uh, American historian, did her PhD at Vanderbilt University. She's currently teaching history at the Lenoir Rhine University in North Carolina. And she's going to share with us a different side of the American story that's not so well known and receives too little attention. Amy Sturgis. Thank you so much. I appreciate your attention today. I'd like to, to thank Tom for the invitation uh, to speak to you. It's a particular thrill uh, to me that, that he would invite me, as it was uh, uh, Tom himself many years ago, who was a faculty member, a professor at uh, IHS summer seminar where I was an undergraduate student, um, who helped really uh, solidify my thinking about and my commitment to the subject of liberty. So it means a lot to have that invitation from him. I want to thank uh, the Cato Institute for putting on this event, and uh, also in particular for taking some of the time out of your intellectually action-packed week uh, in order to uh, talk about um, the experience of those who were and are the first Americans. The morals of the story I'm going to tell you are, I'm quite sure, completely new to you, things you have never thought of before, things such as uh, collectivism doesn't work, uh, the idea that the state cannot create, but it can steal, the idea that conditions we would find deplorable in uh, any other country are unchecked and ignored here in our own, and I should add, funded by taxpayer money. And if you're looking for ways to trim the budget, and who isn't, uh, I can nominate one agency that should die a swift and permanent death. Uh, you've already heard uh, up front, uh, I, am, I am not a policy analyst, uh, economist, political scientist, or legal scholar. I am a historian, but I think it's important to have a historical perspective on the subject because so much of U.S. policy toward Native America, past and present, has been inspired by and justified by poor, mistaken, or purposefully twisted history. I don't have adequate time today to undo all of this, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to try. Allow me to start uh, by addressing uh, a couple of myths. We can't talk about US policy toward Native America without uh, immediately stumbling over some huge obstacles uh, that uh, are, are, are pretty much uh, the, the, the large elephant in the middle of the room uh, today as well as in the past. And so let's go ahead and talk about those first. Um, one myth that just has to, has to be buried is the myth that prior to European contact, Native Americans had no concept of property ownership. This is false. Now, you can look at uh, 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 storytelling. You can look at the oral tradition. There's all kinds of ways, if you go straight to the source, um, to, to find out that this is false. But a number of scholars are doing really important work on this today. And so I can bring some of their um, uh, uh, critical contemporary tools as well to the subject to say, this is not true. It's really weird. It's as if um, there's this been a, a collective agreement to imagine uh, American Indians as sort of wandering around in this nomadic uh, lifestyle, sort of like H.G. Um, Wells' Eloy in the, the Time Machine, just sort of um, smiling benignly and waiting for food to fall into their lap, wandering around the continent, not, not really doing anything, and that's just false. Um, scholars like Malcolm Margolin uh, have looked at in the far west, in what's like today Southern California, the idea that, uh, well, the fact that there were, uh, even before contact with, uh, with Europeans, um, long-term uh, farming, settled communities, where individuals could gain ownership of individual farms through classic homesteading means. They have to improve the land. They have to improve the land in a farming manner for a number of consecutive years, and then that farm is theirs. They could sell it, they could lease it, they could inherit it, and the things that went with it, the farm itself, the tools, etc. And of course, they could also defend it from trespassers and squatters. This is property rights. Uh, in the North, people like um, D. Bruce Johnson have looked at the British Columbian salmon waters. 
the Northwest Coast tribe, several of the nations there, developed what Johnson calls, and I quote, well-functioning capital markets. And they recognized property rights to salmon streams with hereditary title vested in local group leaders who would then hire and pay families to help harvest and preserve the salmon and the different areas of, uh, of the river would kind of compete against each other. And in fact, one of the, the local terms for um, basically big man on campus uh, in, in those communities would be river owner because of uh, the esteem that came from running that part of the river well. There are so many examples of uh, individual or family hunting territories with elaborate mechanisms for taking care of property rights, including even in, in uh, uh, certain nations in the Northeast, um, customs for hungry travelers who just found themselves in an area that um, was particularly claimed by one person or by one family, that they could actually kill an animal to eat it, but they would have to skin and leave the pelt, which was the valuable part, uh, next to a marker that identified whose area of the forest this was, so that in fact they were uh, uh, giving the, the fruit of that area uh, to the person who owned it. The southeast, uh, the Cherokees. I'll default probably several times in my talk to talking about the Cherokees simply because I, I know that culture and, and uh, common law tradition best. Um, and incidentally, speaking of not nomadic people, uh, the latest estimates about Echota, which is the, the capital city of the Cherokee Nation and was um, what, what translates as time immemorial, um, uh, the estimate now from archaeologists is that Echota served as a permanent settlement for what they are estimating is up to 40,000 years. Not four, not 14, 40. Um, they now know there were several different migrations. This was one of the first. Uh, that's homesteading rights when you've been there for 40,000 years. Um, the Cherokee Nation was organized into several distinct territories, several regions within the Cherokee Nation. And within those regions, um, in order to have the status of a town, you had to have all seven clans represented. Why did you have to have all seven clans represented? That's so a Cherokee who was traveling from town to town knew that his life and his property would be protected because he had a built-in system to deal with the local uh, 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 council uh, because he knew that his clan was there, and they would, whether they'd ever met him before, whether they knew who he was, he could automatically plug into that clan, and they would represent him in the, in the tribal council in case, for example, someone took his stuff. He had a natural advocate, and then whoever was being um, uh, 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 considered to be the, the perpetrator would also have uh, an advocate in the, in the legal system there. But the idea that the clans worked as a legal system to protect the life and the property of Cherokees was built into the whole notion of how they saw towns. Incidentally, this is just too good not to, to throw in, um, the Cherokees were one of several groups that played into um, this weird little moment in history where uh, a group of millennialist uh, Christian missionaries and a group of uh, rabbinical scholars um, basically came together and all agreed that um, the Native Americans were the lost tribe of Israel. This was happening in the mid-17th century, and there was a, a, a thought in vogue for a little while that whatever, um, whatever that the Jesus was going to come back in the year 1660, and whichever country um, uh, uh, basically um, won over more souls uh, would actually get to be then the country where, where Jesus came back. And so there was a kind of um, uh, competition built into uh, missionary efforts across the world for a while. And then lo and behold, you have this new world, right? And so a whole bunch of missionaries were, were going over uh, uh, to, to North America. And they came up with this idea uh, that, in fact, these, these natives that they were having interactions with um, must be Jewish. Now, this plays into the worst ethnic and racial stereotypes possible. But the reason they said this is why I'm, I'm bringing this up. They said they come out and they want to barter. They want to trade. They want to make a contract with you. They bring goods. They're great business people. So they must be, right? Um, so... Unfortunate, but it tells you there was an understanding of property, of property rights, of contract. Um, 
Incidentally, the, the uh, uh, group of, of uh, rabbis and learned scholars in Amsterdam picked up on this and said, this is great, because the Jews had been um, uh, expelled from, from England. And so they started writing these great tracts of, of uh, uh, Jewish scholarship saying, yes, those Native Americans are, in fact, the lost tribe of Israel. Um, and since you're colonizing that place, you have already let the Jews back into England since you've just got a whole new continent full of Jews. So guess what? De facto, we're, uh, we're let back in. And they actually kind of won that argument. Um, but <laughs> all of that goes back to the fact that uh, the first the first interactions were, uh, what have you got? What will you take for it? And, and what of mine do you want? Uh, in fact, if you go back even farther to the very first contact narratives we have between Europeans and North Americans, there's stories of trade. And I'm talking about the, uh, the so-called Vinland sagas, uh, Eric the Red sagas, and the, the saga of the Greenlanders um, that come to us through the, the great Icelandic texts. Uh, this is, talks about the, the interaction of, uh, of the Norse explorers in Vinland, which is North America, and their interactions with the Skralings, which are Native Americans, um, sometime shortly after the year 1000. And uh, the, their, their explanations in both of those sagas of how they meet, there are a couple of random meetings where they just sort of give each other the hairy eyeball and go on. But when the first organized meetings that they ever have are the natives coming to their little camp saying, we've been watching you. We see you don't have X, Y, and Z. Here, here are our goods. Um, now, of course, they weren't saying this in a language that the Norse could understand, but they understood the, the, the idea of trade. And uh, the first intentional interactions between Native Americans and Europeans were invitations to do business with each other. Um, Lastly, before I move on from my, my soapbox here about myth number one, it's important to note that um, scholars such as Craig Galbraith, Carlos Rodriguez, and Kurt Stiles have pointed out that many of the first and best known European settlements in North America were far more socialist in nature than the surrounding pre-colonial native settlements. Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts, for example, was organized as a communist collective. After it began to decline because of the free rider problem, the Massachusetts governor, who was then at the time William Bradford, privatized much of Plymouth's property, using the nearby American Indian villages as his uh, model for individual property rights and economic sustainability. On a related note, um, both two of the scholars I just mentioned and, and several others have noted that um, in certain native nations, um, there developed extensive property rights to intangible assets, things like songs and stories and rituals and tattoo emblems, things that could be sold, could be um, owned, uh, obviously, could be inherited, could be uh, uh, given away to others. And they were protected by institutions um, that in some cases were far more sophisticated than contemporaneous European protections for the same kinds of intangible property. So the whole idea that uh, you have the, the Native American Eloy just kind of waiting for things to happen, um, living in some sort of um, uh, mystic circle and holding their, uh, holding their um, crystals and chanting to each other um, actually doesn't really uh, uh, give full credit to the kinds of institutions that had evolved in, in native, certain native communities. A second myth is that once there was contact and once there was um, uh, colonization uh, from Europe, that uh, Native America proved completely incapable of adapting to European-style trade and commerce recommend a really good book to you. The Tragic, uh, A Great and Noble Scheme, A Great and Noble Scheme, colon, uh, The Tragic Story of the Expulsion of the French Acadians from Their American Homeland. That's by John Mack Farragher. I reviewed that in Reason Magazine. You can actually find that online now if you go to my website. Uh, there's a great alternate story of how North America could have uh, evolved, could have developed, unfolded, how this story could have happened. Uh, the story that we have now, the story that I'm getting ready to tell you once my very lengthy introduction is done, um, in fact, is not the inevitable story that we have to tell. 
there were a group of uh, not very content uh, French uh, who came over in 1606 and established communities in present-day Nova Scotia. These predated Jamestown and Plymouth to the south. And they developed a really interesting community, this, uh, this French Acadian community, that was a syncretic community um, between the, the French themselves and uh, the local Mi'kmaq. In fact, they created a language, pretty much, that was a, a sort of a, a cobbled together from an archaic French that the, this group spoke and the Mi'kmaq, uh, a, a local language. They uh, intermarried, they put their stuff together, pulled it together, and created quite a thriving community. They grew prosperous, these Acadians, and I'm using Acadians in the broad sense to include the Mi'kmaq who were involved with them, um, thanks to their devotion to trade across uh, ethnic and national boundaries. They found themselves on the edge of this imperial world that was sometimes claimed by the French and sometimes claimed by the English, and because they were out there on the periphery, they just sort of ignored both. And they traded with both. And they traded with other explorers and colonists. And they traded with other native groups beyond the Mi'kmaq. Um, for all comers, they offered free trade without that inconvenience of you know, tariffs and regulations that were the hallmark of the mercantilist economies um, of Britain and France at the time. Furs, guns, rum crops, finished goods, all passed through them. They brought with them, the, the, the French brought with them the, the great ability to make alcohol. The, uh, the Mi'kmaq had with them um, some really great agricultural techniques. They sort of blended them and became um, a little bit of everything to everybody. And I'm not talking about just a handful of people. This community at its height had upwards of 20,000 people. And for 150 years, they lived in peace. And they thrived. And they were friends to the local native nations. They were friends to anyone who would come and do business with them or anyone who would leave them alone. And in fact, they even declared independence long before everyone else on the continent did. However, um, finding it was easier since they had the guns to raid rather than trade, the, uh, the British finally came along in 1755 in what has been called the first state-sanctioned ethnic cleansing in North America. They took all of the Acadians and Mi'kmaq's stuff. Um, in the process, the Acadians were by, uh, by bayonet uh, uh, rifle butt um, taken from their homes, uh, meant to give up everything, scattered all the way from Nova Scotia all the way down to what is present-day Louisiana. And over 50% of their population was decimated in the effort. Uh, in, in 2003, Queen Elizabeth apologized. But the fact is, uh, they had improved the land, they had created wealth. They had made a whole lot of people happy, whether they were getting furs or getting rum or getting uh, local produce. And uh, this could have been the story uh, of the way North America unfolded if, in fact, the state hadn't come in with its coercive power and taken away things that it wanted. Now, moving ahead. Um, when we do have uh, the, the newly formed United States, uh, even before he's president, Jefferson's notion of uh, the civilization campaign, which is what he called it, um, pretty much uh, 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 ruled the day. The idea that help the, the Native Americans assimilate, we all get along, eventually we'll all intermarry, it won't really matter anyway, it's all good. Um, the problem with this was that it was too successful. In the same way the British saw and liked what the Acadians had and took it, the US liked what the natives had and took it. The 1830 Indian Removal Act would be justified as a humanitarian gesture because those poor American Indians just couldn't cope with the kind of civilization that the United States had. And the only way to keep them from going extinct was to pick them up by force and move them. 1830, years before this act. I'm just going to use the Cherokees again because that's what I know best. Years before, 
this act. The Cherokees had a written and ratified constitution. They had a, a written language. Uh, they had a bilingual national press and a bilingual educational system and a higher literacy rate than the, the populations of the surrounding states. They had thriving businesses and thriving farms. The house you see behind me is uh, one of the homes of Principal Chief John Ross of the Cherokee Nation, um, who was Principal Chief at the time the Indian Removal Act uh, came out. Um, not only, uh, he, he lost uh, uh, the town that he helped to found, which was a trading town based on his trading post. We know it today as Chattanooga, Tennessee. He lost his house. He lost on the Trail of Tears his wife as well. All this, despite the fact that he and his companions took uh, the Cherokee case of uh, Worcester v. Georgia all the way to the Supreme Court in 1832 and won. And in the decision in favor of the Cherokees, Chief Justice John Marshall said that the relationship between Indian nations and the United States is that of nation to nation. He argued that the United States, in the character of the federal government, inherited the rights of Great Britain as they were held by that nation. And those rights, he stated, were the sole right of dealing with the Indian nations in North America to the exclusion of any other European power, and not the rights of possession to their land or political dominance over their laws. They won that case in 1832. And in 1838 and 1839, somewhere between a quarter and a third of the Cherokee Nation were killed in the Trail of Tears, because Andrew Jackson said he would not, in fact, enforce that decision. The American Indian as socialist or communist or non-property holder nevertheless has been used repeatedly to justify massive seizure and redistribution of wealth. It's not a fact, it's just a weapon. I just wanted to say that, so I had a whole slide just for that part. Okay. Um, now, moving on. I'm going to, in order to talk about policy today, I have to give you um, a, 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 a really quick, um, uh, U.S. Native American History 101 course. So this is going to be really fast. It's not, uh, it's not going to do the job. I'm sorry for, 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 for being quick about this. But hopefully, it will give a context to some of the things that I talk about. I've already mentioned the Indian Civilization Campaign. Um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, whose story this really is, that's the agency I was talking about that doesn't need to exist. Um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, begins in 1824. In 1824, um, President Monroe thinks that the very concept of removal is, quote, revolting to humanity and utterly unjustifiable. And yet in that same year, the Office of Indian Affairs is created and located in the War Department. Uh, I already mentioned the Indian Removal Act uh, and uh, the decisions that followed, including Worcester v. Georgia, which, as I pointed out, was decided in favor of the Cherokee Nation and, in the larger sense, in the favor of Native America itself. Um, but the fact that the, uh, 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 the Cherokees fought this and, and won it uh, obviously didn't help them at all. With removal, which, uh, which begins in the 1830s, the Office of Indian Affairs becomes a de facto war and police machine. And we see this in the way that uh, the orders came down to use the, the, uh, the state militias to help and how removal was to be enacted as a military exercise um, with, with military strategy. In 1849, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is moved to the Department of Interior, where it remains today. So you have land and patents and Indians. Uh, massive removal takes place uh, from the 1830s to the uh, 1860s. By 1866, over two dozen different native nations in different um, actions, campaigns, however you would like to say that, um, had been displaced, their land taken, and they had been removed and resettled to what is today uh, the state of Oklahoma. So about 26 nations in 30 years um, put in what is today uh, uh, Oklahoma. Now, 1865 marked a different era in this Bureau of Indian Affairs. It begins what's called the humanitarian period. 
Um, this is when the agency becomes the healthcare provider and the educator for, uh, for Native America. Now, the humanitarian period um, comes about in a couple of ways. First, everybody's sick of the war. The war is over. Let's do something good. We have a national press um, with the kind of, of engine that we didn't have before the Civil War. Now it's got to have stories to report. Um, there's there's the, the, you know, this, this uh, mill ready uh, for, for, for more material. And it is in 1864 that you have the Sand Creek Massacre, which is a story that runs headlines uh, across the country. That's where um, 150 uh, surrendered Cheyenne, who were by orders of the US Army, um, camped outside of Fort Lyon, uh, Colorado, mostly women and children um, under, under Black Kettle. And uh, the, the more troops come into the fort, they say, oh, look, there's Indians, and they killed every single one of them. And this, this uh, massacre of these uh, under white flag surrendered uh, 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 Cheyenne started this sort of nationwide movement. We need to do something for the American Indians besides shoot them. So you start this humanitarian period where the BIA becomes the educator and healthcare provider for American Indians. Uh, that doesn't last long, the humanitarian part of that, because uh, the 1870s begins a new policy um, in the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs called the Treaty Abandonment Period. Uh, at this point, Commissioner Francis Walker says that the treaties were, and I quote, a mere form to amuse and quiet savages, a half-compassionate, half-contemptuous humoring of unruly children. In other words, we don't mean what we say on those pieces of paper. The Board of Indian Commissioners agreed, saying the treaty system should be abolished. Nice that you can just do that, right? Forget all those things. Um, so 1874 to uh, 1894, the so-called Indian Wars. Um, this is where you had the last uh, great marches, the, the Long Walk of the Navajo and others, the, the, the fighting of the, the, uh, the Apache, the things that they make all the movies about, the things that gave John Wayne a career. And uh, during that period, the staff of the BIA doubles. And it uh, is coordinated with the US Army. So even though it's, it's not in the War Department anymore, it, it really kind of still is. 1879, uh, Standing Bear versus Crook. 1879, it's determined that um, within the meaning of the law of the United States, an American Indian is a person, not, not a citizen. That doesn't come until 1921. But a person, for example, killing one is murder. 1879, the Supreme Court case. But here we come to the really big points about property rights. This is what sort of affects what comes, uh, comes after. In fact, it affects exactly what's happening today in Native America. Um, these, uh, these two big acts that pretty much define what property rights are going to be for Native America. The first is the, Daw the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act comes in 1887. And the idea is, and I quote directly from the act, to allot parcels of land to Indians and to give them individual titles to their farm, thus to foster the pride of individual ownership, that pride they had before we took their stuff. So, uh, so the idea was, uh, in the, the, the uh, Indian Territory, for example, um, this, this big hunk of land that they said, here, this is Chickasaw now, um, there would be a grid placed over it, and each of those little parcels, um, these allotments, would be given to individual Chickasaw, for example. In theory, the idea was empowerment. Um, the idea also was, frankly, that it would be easier to get hands on that property if people, some of whom don't speak English, for example, some of whom aren't, aren't um, uh, uh, are, are, are somewhat cowed by you know, people coming from the US government with guns, um, might just go ahead and give up their claim to that. And, uh, and so there was a already a desire that, uh, that what was Indian territory would become a, a US state. And the idea was to get, get land out of the hands of uh, American Indians and into the hands of, of white settlers. Um, in, in action, it, it, it's, it was a mixed bag, OK? Um, in 1881, uh, 138 million acres were in American Indian possession. By 1900, only 50 million acres were, and over 100,000 
American Indians were landless. Now, part of this was complete incompetence, the people um, who were uh, designed to set up the allotments to begin with. Um, people got the side of cliff, you know, and were told to go be, be a good farmer now. That didn't really work terribly well. Um, some people, for some reason or another, didn't end up there. Some people sold their land. But at any rate, it was sort of a, a, uh, a mechanism by which, for, for um, through one way or another, uh, Native America went from 138 million acres to 50 million acres. But a lot of people who got their allotments really tried to become the farmers that the US government told them to be, which really sucked for them. Because in 1934, the government changed their mind. And so, less than 50 years later, individual property in Native America was eliminated by law. Enforced collectivism became the law when Dawes was overturned by the Wheeler-Howard Act, which is part of the New Deal, also known as the Indian Reorganization Act, and that's what I'll call it from now on. In that act, they said, you know that stuff about individual property, about individual allotments, about your title to land? We changed our mind. No more. Land would be held in common. Now here, I'm going to quote from the book False Myths and, I'm sorry, the essay, False Myths and Indigenous Entrepreneurial Strategies, from the book Self-Determination, The Other Path for Native Americans. And I will put that up there later, because I'm going to recommend that book. I'm going to quote because this says it far better than, than I could. In effect, these governmental actions, that is, following the Dawes Act, giving the allotments, and then taking them away again with the Indian Reorganization Act, created two serious problems. First, they institutionalized a land tenure and property rights system that was fundamentally collective in nature, forcing a culturally alien legal system upon the indigenous populations that, in fact, carried a strong belief in individual property rights, were highly entrepreneurial and innovative, and had little experience or interest in collective organization. Second, making not the Native American struggles to develop an economic organization efficient enough to compete with the neighboring settlers. The reservation system actually further increased the costs of transacting within that framework and then made it into law." End quote. That same year, 1934, in which private property was abolished in Native America, the American Indian Federation, which was a group of Native leaders and representatives created a platform, issued their platform, which included the following plea, and I quote, free the Indians immediately from their status of wardship under the guardianship of the Indian office, turn over to the states the services for Indians, and repeal the Indian Reorganization Act, which has been drawn up by communists. It's ironic that while the United States was going through wave after wave of red scares with fear that they were seeing communists everywhere, in fact, the United States was imposing communism upon an entire population under its coercive power, a population that did not want it. There have been multiple calls for reform, both from natives and from non-natives, and I'm just going to run down a few um, just for kicks. 1954, Felix Cohen, the legal scholar who sort of wrote the Bible to American Indian law that was taught for decades in law schools, wrote in the Yale Law Journal that the Bureau of Indian Affairs was, and I quote, an extortion racket, and that natives were threatened with losing all of their human rights if they continued to be subjected to its power. Um, read a few other things. The Hoover Commission, um, its report came back uh, saying that the Bureau of Indian Affairs should be uh, either radically changed or abolished. The Declaration of Indian Purpose, which was the voice of the voice of the American Indian Conference, hundreds of chiefs got together for this for this event. They issued the Declaration of Indian Pur uh, Purpose in um, uh, uh, 1961 
stating the desire to, quote, give up government charity and government paternalism in favor of self-determination. The Presidential Task Force of 66, the Josephi Study, also another executive uh, commission report in 1969, uh, all said this system is broken, it's very, very bad, and it needs to be fundamentally changed or abolished. Then you get, in the 1960s and the 1970s, um, the protest movements uh, from, from Native America that, in a sense, sort of paralleled um, the, the civil rights uh, actions, um, the, the equal rights actions, uh, different other movements that were uh, protesting at the time. The um, American Indian Movement, AIM, the Red Power Movements, they did a number of things. They occupied Alcatraz. Um, they occupied Wounded Knee, the site of the Great Wounded Knee Massacre. And you may remember Marlon Brando wouldn't take his Academy Award because he wanted uh, people to, to see what was going on at the standout, uh, standoff at um, uh, uh, Wounded Knee. Um, perhaps most interestingly for our purposes, they, uh, they hosted the Trail of Broken Treaties, um, which started in California and drove all the way across the nation to Washington, D.C., where they broke into the Bureau of Indian Affairs, had a sit-in, and shut the Bureau down for six weeks. Uh, one of its leaders, who I will talk about again later, Russell Means, said, uh, in fact, if you can shut a Bureau down for six weeks and no one in the United States notices, maybe you don't need that Bureau to begin with. Um, there are uh, lots of other things I could point to. 1994, Stealing from Indians was a whistleblower novel, novel, sorry, whistleblower book. <laughs> it was not fictional, it was real. Um, uh, nonfiction, uh, written by one of the, um, the, the CPAs uh, doing the books for the Bureau of Indian Affairs and said, there are billions of dollars that have gone AWOL here as the BIA acts as the bank for Native American nations holding Native... Uh, uh, tribes' money in trust and doling it out like so much of a of a um, allowance, and that uh, the people really needed to know that that essentially we were paying for these people to take take away uh, to sit on and take away um, from from the people the the uh, the money that was legally theirs. Um, the uh, the Cherokee Nation crisis. I won't go into this in detail, although I'd love to. So if you want to ask me about it, and I'll talk about it. I also wrote a, an, uh, an, an expose article for Reason Magazine called Tale of Tears, which is now online as well if you're interested. Um, this was a really incredibly appalling story, and um, it just goes to show that there's uh, the natives are... are under the BIA in such a way there is no form of, of redress. And so it's, uh, it's uh, quite frightful. In this case, uh, a chief who was undergoing completely uh, constitutional impeachment process for um, misuse of funds. Uh, there, all of the, the uh, uh, processes under Cherokee law had been followed. It was a, a peaceful thing. Um, and one of the things he had done was was loaned, apparently, uh, loaned um, uh, Cherokee workers to the Democratic National Committee, not something he was supposed to have done. Uh, he disappears right before he's supposed to to testify at hearings, uh, to, to give uh, testimony, uh, and he comes back with what was essentially his own Renton army. The BIA came and occupied the nation, uh, shut down their legal processes, uh, shut down their law enforcement, shut down the the inquiry into the chief, and sat there um, holding the, the, the nation at gunpoint uh, until the, the tenure in his office was over. And uh, in the end, the, this caused a terrible constitutional crisis, a terrible legal uh, crisis. Um, you know, people were dragged out of their, their uh, offices in handcuffs um, because they were, they were trying to, to do their jobs. And in the end, the BIA said they misread the situation and they were sorry for their months-long occupation of the Cherokee Nation, completely, completely um, uh, uh, illegal. Um, this underscore the fact that there's absolutely no means of, of redress for this sort of thing, because the, the BIA is everything. Um, BIA gate, the, the, the billions of dollars that um, the author Stealing from Indians said uh, uh, was missing, was in fact missing. Uh, and uh, you, if you saw uh, John Stossel Goes to Washington, um, you saw the, uh, the then um, 
uh, Secretary of Interior walk out on him when he was asked about the, the, those billions of dollars that had gone missing. Uh, they're now actually coming up in court. Um, just a, a few months ago, uh, uh, one particular tribe sued and won to, to, to get some of the money that um, uh, had gone missing back. But conveniently, a lot of the documents that uh, the BIA had, some of their record-keeping documents, were apparently not only not electronically kept, they were kept in shoeboxes and such, and a cellar that got rained on or something, and so all of them conveniently disappeared. So it's a very, very murky thing. And it's been now well over a decade that uh, investigation has been going on into that. And one successive uh, presidential administration after another, it makes absolutely no difference. It's just this, this ongoing sort of nightmare. Uh, the, the Republic of Lakota uh, out of um, uh, South Dakota uh, was a, a very interesting uh, uh, phenomenon that happened here. Uh, Russell Means, who I will talk about again later, um, a former American Indian uh, uh, movement activist, um, Uglalasu, uh, led a group that declared themselves under the Treaty of Fort Laramie from 1868 um, sovereign, and the Black Hills and such uh, actually, in fact, belonging to the, to the Sioux, which it does according to the treaty, even the part that now has presidential faces um, carved into it. Uh, and uh, they declared themselves um, independent of the United States, would no longer recognize uh, the United States and, and uh, declared their independence. Nobody really noticed, unfortunately, but, um, <clears throat> but they've been making a, a good faith effort uh, to, to try to get some publicity to uh, some of the issues that they have been facing. Um, all that is to say is this is an ongoing situation that has protest in, in one form or another. Um, the, the actions of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and for that matter, US policy altogether. <clears throat> the big change in US policy, if you want to call it that, came in 1975 with the uh, Indian Self-Determination Act, which, uh, contrary to what it sounds like, does not provide for self-determination. Um, what, what does this do? Well, first, let me, uh, let me point out that, that uh, uh, Pine Ridge Reservation is the sort of held up as the example of the failure of US policy um, toward uh, uh, Native America. I was just up there not too long ago filming a documentary um, called Beyond the Frontier by Filmmaker, uh, an Italian film uh, uh, company uh, that was doing a, a documentary on the American West and what Italians think of as the American West and what the American West really is. And it was uh, particularly disheartening to see all of this through their eyes. Uh, Native Americans today have the lowest life expectancy rate of any group in the country. Um, Native American men um, of any, any ethnic uh, racial group uh, in, in, the, uh, in the United States have a significantly lower life expectancy rate. The highest infant mortality rate in the United States also in Native America. And Pine Ridge, South Dakota is the poorest community in the United States. Right now, estimated about 83% unemployment. Um, Zybac County in South Dakota, which is divided between the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation and the Standing Rock Indian Reservation, is the poorest county in the United States. In the 2000s, it was reported that a substantial portion of the population on some of these reservations in South Dakota, uh, upwards of 20%, of did not have indoor plumbing or basic sanitary facilities for the preparation of food. You may recall in 2010, um, there was a, a really terrible uh, ice storm up there, and uh, there was this intense uh, sort of grassroots movement to try to get attention, brought particularly to the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation, because the blizzard completely destroyed um, their infrastructure for their uh, power and water systems. And so you had everyone on the reservation without water and without heat during this intense blizzard. Um, it, was, it was quite, uh, quite fearful. Um, and this is what the United States uh, government has been helping. That is, serving as the bank's school and healthcare provider uh, uh, creates, uh, in fact, this third world condition. The United States has helped Native America, as Russell Means has said, um, in some cases almost literally to death. Um, the 1975 Self-Determination Act suggest that, uh, suggested, said that all tribes had the right to manage goods and services formally provided by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Again, not a legal scholar, not an attorney. But it sounded like to me that meant that what the Bureau of Indian Affairs did no longer existed. It sort of took away their reason for being. 
Um, what this meant in practice is not what it said in the act. Um, they are not, in fact, free to, to uh, conduct their own lives. Um, they now, the way this has worked in practice, can bid for self-determination contracts. A self-determination contract is if you want to build a building or if you want to do X, Y, or Z, then you put in um, a, a request form and several years later um, we'll tell you whether or not that actually happens. This is what Russell Means was, um, was talking about when he said here, we cannot make a plan or a decision without the express consent of the Secretary of Interior. We submit anywhere from two to five year economic plans. Does that sound like the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union and their failed? economic plans, but that's exactly what happens uh, under these self-determination contracts. Um, so it's not the step toward independence that it sounds like it is. And remember, these are contracts in order to be awarded the money that is already held in trust for them. That is, that is their money. Um, here are some of the problems with the self-determination contracts. First, the projects that they, you know, say you want to build a school. The projects cost far more than they would otherwise due to the extra human hours and resources involved in applying for the contract and processing the application, which takes usually on the course of years. Second, the rigid economic planning called for by the application process doesn't allow the tribal leadership to enjoy the same autonomy that you know, regular um, business people who would make flexible decisions based on uh, the opportunities that come their way, um, entrepreneurs might do, um, to enhance their efficiency and you know, kind of take place in this, uh, in this competitive market. They don't get to do that because they have to plan it out to the dime so far in advance. Third, as, as an economic learning experience for the tribe, and that smacks of paternalism, but what here doesn't smack of paternalism, um, the contract is a failure because it insulates the tribe from real costs and allows for no opportunity for experimentation, trial, or error. And last, each project represents self-determination on such an incredibly small scale and then sends each tribe back to lobby again for the same opportunity. It provides no stepping stone to a more thorough and permanent independence. The benefit of the contract is short-lived, purchased at the expense of other tribes' similar short-term goods, and it comes with the tentacles of the state attached. Now, there may be something you're thinking about right about now as I'm painting this dire portrait of, of Native America and what's going on there. It's what the creators of South Park were thinking of in the seventh season when, when they wrote the episode uh, Red Man's Greed when they wrote about the Three Feathers Casino, and what was it? Um, Chief runs with premise, and his son premise runs thin. Uh, talking about the whole phenomenon of the casinos. Now, the casinos are a separate animal altogether, and uh, in many ways, uh, an, an unfortunate one. Uh, for one thing, this, the stereotype of the, the American Indian casino creates the false impression that um, all of Native America is incredibly rich, and they're rich because um, mostly white people uh, are stupid and greedy and go and gamble their money. And so it's this ill-gotten gains preying on the vice of non-Natives that make Native Americans rich. And all of that's kind of ridiculous. But the, the real, yes, there are certainly Native nations that have become um, uh, owners of and, uh, and runners of uh, casinos that are in much better shape now than they were before that. Obviously, because there is money where there was no money. So this is a good, good thing in temporary short-term um, uh, question. But in the long term, this is not the solution. For one thing, there's a structural problem with the state giving uh, Native nations the, the monopoly opportunity to run casinos. It's very precarious, this, this monopoly. It doesn't depend on the ability of the people to be successful. Instead, it's depending on the outside force, the government, to continue providing the monopoly of gaming. All the eggs are in one basket uh, economically. And so in this sense, the, the native nations are just as dependent 
um, because what the state giveth, the state can take away. And there are some really uh, worrisome examples of the state granting this casino monopoly and then saying, now we want access to this, that, or the other, and that particular tribe saying, well, no, we don't want to do that. And the state saying, fine, we're going to give a casino opportunity to these people who are five miles away from you, and we're also going to allow them this, that, or the other, and essentially take away the only source of livelihood that that particular uh, tribe has. So they become puppets in just another way. And also, there's a, there's a cultural problem with this. This doesn't solve the fact that there's no private property. Um, all it does is create a little bit of wealth that everybody equally gets to partake of. But that still doesn't allow um, for people to become entrepreneurs, for uh, encourage people. Th this is really perverse incentives to just receive a check because there is a casino there on your property. It doesn't support independence of any kind. And so in the long term, uh, it's, it's not a win for, for uh, uh, the tribes that, that actually get to do this. Of course, it makes sense in the short term for them to do this. I mean, they are responding um, in, in the way any rational, self-interested uh, group would. Would you rather starve or would you rather have food? Well, yes, obviously they'd rather have food. But this isn't the solution for um, uh, uh, you know, creating thriving markets and, uh, and encouraging in Native America the same opportunities that belong to everybody else in the United States. That is still missing. I'd like to end by giving you two, um, two case studies um, that show just how problematic um, and how potentially easily solvable uh, the, the economic problems of, of Native America are and, uh, and what this uh, state-imposed socialism really has done. The first example, um, the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. In the 1970s, the Choctaws were in incredibly dire straits financially. They were rivals up there with Pine Ridge. 80% um, unemployment, um, a, a substantial amount of the population living in third world conditions. Um, uh, no no uh, uh, plumbing, um, no sanitary facilities, terrible poverty. Um, just, it's kind of hard to believe that this was the United, in the United States. Chief Philip Martin, um, who, who recently passed away, he's, he's uh, pictured here. Um, and his people decided to petition Congress and basically just throw themselves on Congress's mercy and beg for a separate peace, allow them to do something outside of the control of the BIA. And by some amazing twist of fate, they got it. And so what they did is they wrote to um, the, uh, the 500 top companies across the United States and asked them to locate plants on their property, said, basically, we are starving. We will work for almost nothing. We desperately need anything we can get. Would you, would you be willing to take a risk on us? And the decision paid off. Within 20 years, the Choctaws owned six manufacturing companies. Under the leadership of Chief Martin, the Mississippi Choctaws left their stagnant economy to become a regional leader in business development. The largest employer in East Central Mississippi, one of the 10 largest employers in the state, and that includes employing blacks and whites as well as Choctaws. And now, with new expansion into Mexico, they are a global business force. And this led to political success. In 1997, uh, the executive branches of government of the Mississippi Choctaws in the state of Mississippi signed a historic accord officially recognizing Choctaw sovereignty. Really remarkable. Um, unfortunately, because it worked and worked so well, the US government has made sure no other native nation had the same opportunity. This has been an incredible embarrassment to the United States and a story that, that um, you know, has actively been sort of suppressed in one way or another. I recommend you going to, to the uh, Mississippi Band of Choctaw website. They have uh, really great essays um, that have been in a number of big you know, economic journals talking about what they did. Now, this doesn't completely solve the problem. This is still a collective action. Uh, this is still the, the Choctaws um, from the top down, the tribal leadership, getting this done and everyone sharing the wealth. So this is not the, the, the solution that you know, free marketer uh, um, 
pro-property rights people would love to see, but it's a lot better than any other thing that we have seen in terms of the fact that given opportunity, um, uh, there can be innovation coming from Native America and there can be things happening. This cycle can, in fact, be turned around. The last one um, is, uh, is something I, to be honest, I still have a really hard time wrapping my brain around. Um, but this is, uh, is the story right now uh, that I think is, is worth anyone who is interested in the, the subject of liberty should be looking at. So let's go back to Pine Ridge. Pine Ridge is a very, very bad place, and it is the poster child for how bad Native America is and what a failed policy the United States has with, the, with uh, Native America. I should preface this story by saying not much grows up there. They call it the Badlands for a reason. Um, but during World War II, the U.S. government uh, went to um, this reservation and others in South Dakota and lots of other places and brought industrial hemp seeds, hemp for victory, and said, we know, in fact, that hemp will grow here, and we would like to encourage you to grow it. It is one of the only crops capable of being cultivated there. Okay, let's go back to the 21st century, to the family of Alex Whiteplume, who you see uh, there on the slide. He and his extended family were not only in, in terrible financial straits, but they were also morally sick of the cycle of dependency on the US government. Now, I really want to emphasize here, this is the story of a family. This is not the story of an entire native nation working collectively. This is a story about individuals, and this is a story that matters. They tried various uh, enterprises on Lakota land. Uh, they grew alfalfa, they grew barley and corn, they raised horses, they raised bison, all with barely subsistence results. This was not the way for the white plumes to actually um, be able to improve themselves and have what is called the American dream. In 1998, the Uglala Sioux passed an ordinance to allow the cultivation of low THC hemp. Low THC means you could smoke it all day and all night and never, never get any um, psychoactive benefit from it. This is industrial hemp. This isn't, that's all you can do with it is make, you know, rope and paper and stuff. This is not marijuana we're talking about. No psychoactive properties. There's a thriving world market for it, and the crop's sustainable, despite the reservation's short growing season, and the sale of hemp products is completely legal within the United States. The White Blooms did a great deal of research from their home on the reservation. They courted outside investors and lined up potential buyers, all on their own. They pooled their modest resources to fund this venture, and they got private outside investors to throw in their funds as well. Remember, completely private on the scope of a family, not a tribe. And in April 2000, White Plume and his family planted industrial hemp on what had been historically recognized as their farming area. They nurtured the crop, they cared for it, it thrived, they raised it for months to the point of harvest. And just before they were preparing to harvest the hemp, a surprise federal DEA raid was launched on his property, property sovereign to the Uglala Sioux, according to the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie, and they raised all of the crops to the ground. Saying that industrial hemp was uh, related to cannabis and cannabis was prohibited by federal anti-drug laws of 1968, even though it was the federal government that first brought industrial hemp seeds to the reservation and even though the sale of industrial hemp in the United States is completely legal. The next year, the White Plumes did it again. And the next year, the DEA did it again. In August 2002, White Plume was served with eight civil charges by the U.S. District Attorney related to the hemp cultivation and a court order prohibiting continued growing of the crop. He has appealed. He is still appealing. And if anyone on earth can't afford a decade of being caught up in the courts, it's the White Plume family. And yet that's where they still are. And there has been no other entrepreneurial effort on the Pine Ridge Reservation. 
An entrepreneurial family was ruined, punished for trying to break the bonds of dependency on which the U.S. seems to insist. And that is the problem with Native America today. And I'd like to just end by suggesting a few things. I've had, I had the great pleasure and honor of being invited by the Institute for Humane Studies to do a series of films for their Learn Liberty series, um, all of them devoted to, uh, in one way or another, to US policy, uh, either historic or present day. I think there's five out, and there's one or two more yet to be released. But anyway, if you go to learnliberty.org, you can find those. Standing Silent Nation is a documentary that was done about the White Plume family and about um, the, the illegal uh, uh, DEA uh, raids on their, uh, on their farm, and I highly recommend that. It's incredibly um, uh, uh, disturbing to me. I, I taught this uh, recently in my graduate course on uh, contemporary Native American affairs, and have several graduate students who are um, uh, not uh, uh, who are international students. They come either from south of the border or across the pond, all raised in in socialist countries, and they could not believe this story. They didn't. Uh, when I first explained it, setting up that we were going to watch the DVD about it, they didn't think it was real, and they went and fact checked behind me because they thought I was making it up. And uh, then they came back and said, "Yeah, you were actually right." And then they saw the documentary and they were utterly horrified. And that's. Uh, um, that's not who they thought we were, I think. I don't think that's who we wanted to be. Um, self-determination, the other path for Native Americans, looks at some, some different opportunities for entrepreneurial activity, um, how they could be made possible by changing US policy, um, and particularly looks at the trap, uh, the, the temporary surge, but the, uh, the, the long-term trap that uh, the casino option offers. Uh, also, Perk Reports uh, put out a, a special issue on American Indians and property rights that's very good. Um, uh, other things there that you might be interested in. Uh, but with that note, I just want to thank you again for your time and attention and thank Cato for, uh, for turning its eyes to the subject of, of U.S. Native American policy. And uh, I will conclude. Thank you very much. Thank you.